In the UK and the US alike, the 60s are an incredibly iconic moment in history. This was a time that marked a cultural shift involving social, musical and artistic change, much of which happened under the influence of psychedelic drugs. This period became known as the psychedelic era. Psychedelic drugs were associated with unity, breaking down boundaries, raising political and social awareness, empathy with your fellow man or woman, and questioning authority. It was also the creative fuel that helped shape popular music of the time. Bands like The Beatles, The Grateful Dead, The Chambers Brothers, Jimi Hendrix, just to name a few, were occupants of different genres whose music was allegedly and unequivocally influenced by psychedelics and embraced by a generation. But before psychedelic drugs made their appearance on the wider cultural stage, they were initially explored as a potential treatment for a number of psychiatric conditions, research which unfortunately was short-lived as psychedelic drugs became the full guy for the cultural havoc of the time. The inevitable backlash drove psychedelic drug research underground. Then after 20 years of virtual prohibition, psychedelic drug research resumed in the 90s with permission from federal regulatory agencies. But stigma is a tough stain to remove and progress has been slow, until now. It's 2018 and psychedelic drug research is going through a renaissance, my friend. Welcome to episode two of Sound Science, Psychedelics in Science and Music. In part one, I'll be taking you on a journey through the music born of this unique moment in history. I'll also be talking to the wonderful Rahel Debebe, front woman of folk prog jazz band Hajira, about how seeing colours when listening to music without drugs has actually influenced her own creative process. In part two, I'll be talking to Professor Grobe, Professor of Psychiatry and Paediatrics at the UCLA School of Medicine. I'll be talking to him about the history of psychedelic drugs and their potential role in a number of different mental health disorders. I'll also be discussing with him whether we can finally question their role in creativity and wellness in the same breath without repeating the patterns and reactions of the past. In the infamous words of Timothy Leary, Harvard psychologist turned psychedelic advocate, turn on, tune in and drop out. So let's start at the beginning with the most fundamental question. What is reality? The definition of reality lies at the center of fundamental philosophical, spiritual, psychological, and scientific questions. Even just scratching at the surface could be an entire episode on its own, so I'm not going to do that, but I am going to try and focus on one aspect, the science bit. And even then, I do have to admit that we don't have all the answers. But this is sort of what we do know. So the brain is hidden inside our skull and therefore can't directly sense the world. That's why we have ears and eyes and the rest of our sensory organs. They contain receptors that relay information via electrical impulses through sensory neurons to the brain. It's then up to our brain to interpret the information, allowing us to perceive reality. question is though, how does the brain create a reality from this information? So one idea is that the brain behaves as a prediction machine. 
It's evolved to combine the signals that it receives from our sensory organs with prior expectations about the world, which are deeply ingrained into our neuronal circuitry. And it makes an informed best guess, if you like, about reality based on that. So obviously there are lots of questions about how this actually works. But one thing that is clear is that with a system based on predictions, sometimes the brain is going to get it wrong. So what happens? Hallucinations are experiences involving the apparent perception of something that is not actually present. Historically, they've been associated with psychiatric disorders, but actually they can show up in otherwise completely healthy individuals under different circumstances such as taking hallucinogenic drugs. Anil Seth, who's a British professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex, argues that our whole reality is actually just one big hallucination, only one that we can agree on. The hallucinations that we ascribe to drug taking, mental illness and neurological disorders, on the other hand, are just uncontrolled hallucinations as a result of misfiring mechanisms, the cause of which boil down to an imbalance of neurotransmitters in our brain, which I'll explain a bit more about later. In other words, the perceptual predictions made by the brain in these conditions may actually just be too strong or not strong enough, and that causes sensory information to become distorted, also known as tripping. Concepts like power and ownership and responsibility are the kinds of things that lead to war and the destruction of the planet. And they come from our ability to recognize ourselves as individuals with personal identities. Also known as the ego, the sense of separation from the rest of the universe has recently been linked to a system in the brain called the default mode network. In the first ever imaging study of the human brain on LSD, conducted by the Berkeley Imperial Research Program, participants experienced sensations of self-transcendence and oneness with the universe, also known as ego disillusion. Interestingly, this was found to correlate with a shutting off of the default mode network. So now feels like about the right time to talk about how psychedelic drugs actually act on the brain. Although I have to admit that the truth is that there is so much that we don't know. A lot of it is a mystery, but I am going to tell you what we do know. So the brain is made up of billions of brain cells or neurons forming a network, and each cell can transmit information by sending electrical impulses from one end of the cell to the other end of the cell. However, neurons aren't actually physically connected. Between each cell, there's a tiny little gap called a synapse. Now, in order for the signal to go from the first neuron to the next in line, the first neuron releases a chemical which can move across the gap and is picked up by special receptors on the next neuron and then the signal can be passed on. The chemicals involved in the signaling system are called neurotransmitters, many of which you would have heard of before, such as dopamine or serotonin. All psychedelic drugs work by affecting neurotransmitter signaling in some way. For example, LSD or psilocybin, aka magic mushrooms, work by mimicking the serotonin that we naturally produce in our brain. Just like our own serotonin, they can bind to specific types of serotonin receptor. In fact, the only difference is that they bind to the receptor even more tightly than the serotonin that we naturally produce. 
As a result, the drugs disrupt the normal signaling pathways in which these receptors play a role in mediating proper communication between neurons. This happens mainly in the prefrontal and visual cortices, which is involved in perception. It causes nearby cell populations to speed up or slow down, and that means that there is a disruption in normal brain activity. Think of one out-of-tune instrument in an orchestra throwing off all of the other instruments. Hallucinogens induce subjective experiences. What's really interesting about them is how variable these experiences are, not just between two different people, but within the same person at different times. You can see why, then, that the Beatles and John Coltrane, who both allegedly wrote music under the influence of LSD, came up with such different creations. Synesthesia or sound to colour synesthesia is a hallucinatory condition in which heard sounds automatically and involuntarily evoke an experience of colour. Like the musicians of the psychedelic era who experienced similar hallucinations under the influence of drugs, some chromosynesthetes find that this altered perception of music actually influences their creative process. I had the extreme pleasure of speaking to the truly wonderful Rahel Debebe, front woman of the amazing band Hajira, about her own experiences with chromosynesthesia and how this has affected her music. When was the first time that you experienced chromosynesthesia? The first time, I think I was whilst um, six or seven in primary school. And we were in assembly, I think, and everyone was singing you know, the daily hymns. (laughs) And I just remember being really overwhelmed with just colours, like a vision of bright colours. Sort of like, you know, looking, when you look through, like through a kaleidoscope. Did you feel scared? It was just kind of like, whoa. And then it was that thing of like, you know, when you just think it's a fleeting thing, Mm -hmm. but it then stays with you and you're like, okay, I'm having this experience. I think at first I was a little bit like, okay, whoa. And then I kind of enjoyed it a little bit. So, um, no, I wasn't completely freaked out, but I wasn't completely chill at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Do you experience it whilst listening to music predominantly? It's it's not all the time, so it's not consistently every single time. It's usually, for example, when I'm immersed in music, so if I'm creating music or if I'm experiencing music in a very specific way, like wearing headphones or if I'm at a watching at a concert not all if it's like a lo-fi experience like if you're I don't know if it's something like just in passing or whatever then I won't really always have that experience but sometimes it's not a specific to this music like it might be like I remember the other day I was standing in the tube station and you know when the tube kind of just you hear the tube coming right. through the tunnel before it comes through the tunnel I sort of saw like you'd see these kind of flashes of colour um, kind of very quick flashes. So it's not consistent and it's not specific to, you know, melodic or, or series of melodic things or a series of, of organised sounds. Does the feeling stay quite consistent? Do you generally always feel quite positive about it? If it's almost like completing a piece of a puzzle of an experience, like a sensory experience. It just feels like you're fully seeing everything and experiencing everything that needs to be experienced in that moment. 
as a musician, you're constantly, or as a composer, you're constantly thinking you want to understand what you're doing all the time, you know? So it's like having that experience helps you to really define how to express everything. Do you just see one strong colour? It's not like a block colour, it's like a sort of lava lamp or like a Microsoft screensaver experience. You are extremely creative. What I'm interested in is how this has enhanced your your creativity, if at all. I think it's kind of influenced what I've gravitated into musically and the, the sort of band that I'm in. The music is quite idiosyncratic. It's a band called Hegira and it's a three-piece sort of writing group and then like a sort of combination of maybe between a five and an 18-piece live group. Amazing. Um, and the music that we make is quite ethereal, you can say, sort of quite experimental. I would say it's like experimental soul. That's how you would describe it, I think. It just helps me to articulate, well, in abstract terms, what you're trying to achieve sonically, especially like when you're, you're working with a mixing engineer or a mastering engineer. I've always found that for me, I've always spoken colours, um, shapes, um, and they always seem to strangely know what I'm talking about if I'm expressing a vision for like film it's just really natural for me to be able to explain in those ways through those ways like well I see this and I see this and I see this for me it's a familiarity as well mm-hmm. it's like if somebody plays E minor automatically I'm like red but then there's different shades of, e, of, of that red and different shades of E minor depending what instrument you're playing and depending which inversion or version you play so it's kind of like that's just but if it's a combination of that chord in a mixture of other elements of or textures of music or sounds, that's when they start to blend, you see? So that's when it becomes a sort of mirage of, or like a mixture of things. Dissonance, for example, like if you have notes that are really close together, can sometimes create a kind of murky pond-like feeling or colour. You can't control what sounds or, like you say, what notes elicit what colours. So does that then influence the tone of the music because you're seeing it in a particular way. I think it does. And if you have these murky, then that's going to create something that maybe creativity doesn't, creatively doesn't feel very appealing because it's like this murky colour. So then maybe you would not put those, you wouldn't blend in that way. I wouldn't say it's like that that clear. Yes, your first point maybe not so much to the second point like in the sense that like dissonance doesn't and just because it's a murky colour doesn't necessarily mean that I wouldn't gravitate towards it or that I wouldn't like it mm. I think it's more actually sometimes it's, there is a sort of satisfaction with that as well mm-hmm. sort of like you know when you I don't know like say you go to a hotel or whatever and they have like a really really strange colour like brown on the painted on the wall yeah. right and then they kind of then have like in front of it that's like bright pink velvet pink and you go I would never put those two colours together but it's kind of working right now kind oh, of thing. yeah I totally get that the kind of same <laughs> experience oh, so it's kind yeah. of like oh it kind of works <laughs> it's like you might actually surprise yourself depending on the situation it, you might move, up, move yourself away from it if it really makes you feel sick but sometimes it doesn't make you feel that way sometimes it makes you feel quite good so you're like oh I want more more of that so just depends I think
think it's a context thing as well. That's a great way to end because actually I think what now I've learned is that I guess actually it allows you to see things that aren't obvious in terms of mm. what might go to, together creatively. And I love the analogy of the pink chair in front of the brown wall. I'm actually thinking, oh, I feel quite inspired. I might go thrifting this weekend and look for a similar combo. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me. That was so insightful and really gave me an idea of kind of what it might be like to experience um, perception the way you do. Um, is there any, do you have any um, upcoming music coming out from the band that you want to share with the audience? Yeah, we um, recently recorded uh, an album and it's called Thread of Gold and uh, yeah, it's sort of based around um, a trip that I, uh, we took back to Ethiopia because I wanted to explore my heritage um, mm-hmm. after my dad passed away and yeah, it's really, I'll send it to you. Oh, please do, <laughs> it absolutely. Will be out, it will be out, um, the first single will come out in October and the album will be out in February. So I'll keep you posted on that. Um, but I can always send you stuff. Yeah, send me a little sneak peek. Yes, please. Yeah, just just take it out. Just Hedira and you know you can H E J I R A. You can find us online. I'm sure on all the socials. On all the socials. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Time just flies by for me on this podcast. I hope you are enjoying the show. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode two of Sound Science, Psychedelic Drugs in Science and Music. So, so far we've spoken a lot about the music. Now I want to talk about the science. I am honoured to have Dr. Charles Grobe on the show, who has been in the field for over 30 years. Professor Grobe is Director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Harbour UCLA Medical Centre, and he's been there since 1993. So he is incredibly knowledgeable. He actually conducted the first government-approved psychological research study of MDMA. He was Principal Investigator of an international research project in Brazil, uh, studying the visionary plant brew ayahuasca and he's also published the first proof research investigation in decades on the safety and efficacy of psilocybin in the treatment of anxiety in patients with advanced stage cancer so his research is incredibly important and i have so much respect for him i'm so excited to have him on the show this is professor grobe and i talking about the history of psychedelics i read an article you wrote about the history of psychiatric research with hallucinogens and psychedelics drugs have a turbulent history which seems to have had quite a polarizing effect among scientists some went in and some decided to wash their hands of them and shy away so you've been in the field of psychedelic drug research for nearly 30 years what made you decide to stick around and could you tell me a little bit about how the field has changed now right well i grew up in the late 60s i went to college in 1968 and it was impossible not to be aware of psychedelics and uh, and although there was limited information compared to what we have access to today what I heard was quite fascinating and by the early 70s when I was kind of searching for a a career choice I I came across a wealth of uh, of of scientific literature addressing psychedelic drugs in medical, psychiatric, neuroscience journals and read everything I could and found it fascinating. But I I also realized that uh, uh, if I was going to work in this area, I would need to go back to school and 
get my get properly credentialed, and that was a, a a very strong motivator to go back and do my pre-med and go to medical school. Of course, by the time I got out of medical school in 1979, there was no psychedelic research whatsoever uh, in this country, and very very little in, in, in Europe. Everything had been shut down because of the cultural and political turmoil of the 1960s. At that time, many individuals who took psychedelics had very, very powerful inner experiences, and they it catalyzed an, an alteration in their outlook towards the world. There were chemists out in the world who learned how to synthesize high-quality psychedelics, particularly LSD, and huge quantities of the compound were really flooding the youth market. Some young people had positive, transformative experience. Some young people who, who had pre-existing vulnerabilities decompensated, most returned to reasonable stability, mental stability not too long thereafter, after the effects had worn off. But a small percentage of people seem to have entered a sustained, deteriorated state, may have had some underlying risk for developing schizophrenia. Uh, this was the stressor that pushed them off the edge, and they became chronically psychotic. Other individuals during the, the in the throes of a very intense, disturbing inner experience would become very anxious or even transiently psychotic, but with some reassurance. And with the passage of some time as the effects of the drug wore off, they returned to baseline. You know, sobered for their experience, but hopefully a little bit wiser about, you know, not doing these experiences in an impulsive, uh, heedless manner as some young people would. Sounds a little bit like Hoffman's first experience. Yeah, in April 1943, the famous Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman uh, synthesized LSD. Uh, his first experience was a mild experience. He felt he absorbed it through his, his skin, maybe a cut in a finger, uh, had a mild alteration of consciousness. So he decided he was going to rigorously, methodically study the range of effects of this new compound that he had, he had synthesized. So three days later, April 19, 1943, he synthesized and ingested 250 micrograms, which for him... He anticipated it's clearly a sub-threshold dose, that nothing would happen, but he needed to establish a baseline. Well, he had no idea that LSD is one of the most extraordinarily potent compounds known to man and activates central nervous system profoundly on even on a microgram dosage level. And he had more than he could handle. He took his famous bicycle ride home <laughs> yeah. and got home and felt disoriented, felt uh, anxious, and took to his bed, told his wife, I think I'm dying, call the doctor. By the time the doctor got to his house, his experience had shifted from one of anxiety and fear to one of openness and appreciation of the beauties of the universe, the beauties of nature, and he felt wonderful and decided this was a fascinating compound that might hold have some relevance to psychiatry. With his co-workers at Sandoz Pharmaceutical in Basel, Switzerland, 
they started to correspond with some of the leading psychiatrists around the world, offering them supplies of this new drug, lysergic acid diethylamide. Psychiatrists initially were interested in its psychotomimetic features. They actually recommended to psychiatrists that they take this drug themselves so they could have an experience of psychosis and better understand the experiences of their schizophrenic patients. A, 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 uh, an English psychiatrist started to use very low doses of LSD with his psychoanalytic patients mm -hmm. and realized that um, it seemed to have lowered defenses, facilitated talking about feelings, talking about uh, whatever psychoanalysts like their patients to talk about in treatment. And he thought it was very valuable to facilitate the uh, psychodynamic psychotherapy process. A higher dose did not avail itself to uh, this kind of interactive psychodynamic psychotherapy, but that a higher dose allowed individuals to enter this profoundly altered state where some of them are reporting mystical level experience. And they also started to experiment giving high doses of LSD and other psychedelics as well, and particularly mescaline, to chronic uh, alcoholics who were not able to you, you know, stop drinking. And some of these individuals, particularly those who had this mystical level experience, were able to establish and maintain sobriety over some period of time. It was misplaced as a Schedule One drug. They're still misplaced as Schedule One drugs, yeah. and there needs to be a re-examination of their scheduling because they, they clearly can be used safely mm -hmm. in a clinical research setting. They, they appear to have a therapeutic application when optimal conditions are adhered to, and um, and for mature individuals who are serious about these compounds, there's a, they're not abused. They're only used in a treatment context. So it really doesn't fit the definition of Schedule One. But being in Schedule One, especially after the conclusion of the 60s into the 70s and 80s into the early 90s, by its very nature, being a Schedule One drug has limited the capacity for investigators to study. By the early 90s, it was once again possible to, um, to get FDA approval, to get DEA approval. Before the 90s, from the late 60s to the early 90s, it really wasn't possible to get new approvals for studies. Most studies were ordered to close down mm -hmm. or simply you know, ran out of um, support, ran out of the duration of their approval by the early 70s. And later, in the early 2000s, we started to get permission to work with, uh, uh, you know, patient population, particularly patient populations that were refractory or non-responsive to conventional treatments. You know, first and foremost, uh, chronic alcoholism, also the existential uh, anxiety, depression, and demoralization of individuals with terminal medical illness, mm -hmm. uh, also people with um, refractory, treatment-resistant, obsessive-compulsive disorder. These are all conditions that often are very difficult to treat using mm -hmm. conventional treatment. Severe chronic PTSD is another. And these have all been studied in, mm -hmm. in either psilocybin or NDMA uh, treatment protocols. Can you tell me much about what we know in terms of the safety of LSD? Uh, but So LSD is, we believe it has a pretty strong physiological safety mm -hmm. range. However, psychologically, that's a whole other issue. Absolutely. Because even at normative dosages, 
uh, vulnerable individuals taking the compound under adverse conditions may be prone for serious psychological reactions, including high levels of anxiety or in some cases even psychosis. As I said earlier, most of the psychosis cases resolve over many hours or a day or two. A minority continue to sustain the chronic psychosis. Look at the literature on adverse effects. You're going to see X number of cases with severe depression or severe dangerous acting out behavior. But if you, ex but, and these articles often neglect to place it in context. Mm. But, but the truth of the matter is, these were individuals drawn from the world of recreational use, and these were individuals who had the best we can understand, serious underlying vulnerability as manifested by their own early premorbid history or manifested by their biological family history, which is, can be an important clue. Yeah, that does yeah. make a lot of sense in terms of, because yeah, my question also was, so studying these drugs, would you say, in the lab versus recreational use, it does produce widely different results. Um, in this episode of the podcast, we've been sort of exploring how musicians have used psychedelic drugs in the past to open them up creatively. What are your thoughts on the idea of psychedelics in wellness in terms of enhancing creativity? Can you envision a future where you can have sort of wellness clinical clinics where psychedelics are used under controlled environments? There are, there are you know, innumerable examples of individuals who had access to psychedelics either in research studies or otherwise, who report that their creative product was inspired, was catalyzed, was facilitated by psychedelic experience. And I think those are very interesting stories to hear. Jim Fadiman, again, the, the, you know, the, the maven of microdosing, was an, as a young psychologist in the mid-60s, uh, when he he was in the at Stanford, it was actually a, I think a separate research institute at Menlo Park, with a, uh, a professor of engineering named Willis Harmon. They devised a study looking to determine if a psychedelic might facilitate creative problem solving. Oh, so as subjects, they recruited in individuals who were, you know, at the top of their field, whether it was architecture or engineering or medicine or what have you, but who were stymied, who, who, who were trying to resolve a problem or, 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 or further extend their research, but found there was an obstacle. Uh -huh. So the task of the psychedelic experience was, how are you going to solve this impasse? How are you going to work around or get through this obstacle? And Fadiman and Harmon reported very positive results. So there's there's much untapped potential psychedelics hold as long as they are treated with respect and and not misused and abused. How do you see control in all of this in terms of so you can use them to treat psychiatric disorders and they do have potential in wellness, but there's still that element of abuse. What kind of future do you? Well, first of all, sort of, uh, what well, do you think is important? Well, my ideal in... future would have a extensive education campaign, mm -hmm. so people would be educated in the do's and the don'ts of, of, of these compounds. And keeping in mind that these compounds are not for everyone, mm -hmm. but for those who are drawn to them, there needs to be to be screening. There needs to be preparation. 
Uh, optimally, there needs to be facilitation, someone monitoring the experience, make sure the individual is adequately prepared, that they're safe while they go through the experience, and to provide assistance in integrating the experience afterwards. I mean, this is clearly a model for you know, therapeutic work. It's also a model which could be implemented for you know, wellness mm. or for mm-hmm. generally, by and large, healthy people who are seeking this experience to enhance their spirituality or creativity or self-understanding. That's brilliant. So that brings me to the end of the interview. (laughs) Thank Thank you you so much. If you would like to find out more about Professor Greb's work, you can do so via my website, which is www.soundsciencepodcast.com, and there are some show notes on there, and also for Rahel, and also last month's show, The Science of Heartbreak, Why Emotional Pain Feels Like Physical Pain, there are some show notes on that episode also. So that's the end of this month's show. It was 